The reading this morning is from Acts chapter 12. I'll be reading verses 18 through the end of the chapter. These are God's words, therefore please give your careful attention to the reading of them. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord. And having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. And all of God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. Pray with me this morning as we come before our God and come to consider His Word. Father God, this is a sobering passage, and we come to it with open minds, and we come to it with open hearts, for it is Your Word. We ask for your help and understanding. We ask for your Holy Spirit's help in illuminating the meaning of these words to us and their significance to us, and especially, Father, in using them to continue the work of transforming us by the renewing of our minds. And we ask, Father, that you would make our hearts submissive to them and that you would teach us to glorify you in light of everything that you reveal and speak in your word. Father, may the words of my mouth this morning... May the meditations of our hearts this morning be pleasing to you as we come to your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. As you all know, as I'm sure you've seen posted all over the internet and blasted at you on the airwaves and displayed all around you in our ever-corrupting culture, The month of June has, since the year 1969, been recognized in the United States of America as Pride Month, a celebration of the LGBTQ community and of that lifestyle and of that value system. This year, our own president... President Biden wrote an official presidential proclamation. You can find it on the White House's website on June 1st on Lesbian, Gay, Bisexual, Transgender, and Queer Pride Month 2021. And in his words, here is the words of our leader, our president. Pride is both a jubilant communal celebration of visibility and a personal celebration of self-worth and dignity. Now, if that doesn't remind you of Psalm 2, I don't know what will. And there's a contrast in Psalm 2, isn't there, between 
what the kings of the earth do and say and what God does and says. And so for his part, by contrast, the one true, eternal, living God and only king of all creation says, the pride of man shall be humbled and the lofty pride of men shall be brought low and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. Isaiah chapter 2 and verse 17, God has no regard for human pride, especially when that pride is a celebration of sin. In the New Testament, James says in no uncertain terms that God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And of course, as the people of God, it is our solemn obligation to oppose everything that God opposes including both the sins that are celebrated on Pride Month and the pride itself, by which countless people are shaking their fists at God and His anointed and raging against them and trying their hardest to burst their bonds apart and cast away the cords of their holiness and righteousness and justice. While America celebrates sin and pride, The one God and the one King who sits in heaven laughs. And Psalm 2 says, holds them in derision. And the words of that psalm which we just read together a minute ago give that sober warning. Kiss the Son, Jesus Christ, lest He be angry and you perish in the way. For His wrath is Kindled quickly, but blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Now as we come to the end of Acts chapter 12 today, we come to see what happens when prideful people unrepentantly kindle the fearsome wrath of the Holy God and King of this universe. And that reality of who God is, of what God is, of His nature, His wrath, is a reality and a subject that is increasingly unpopular to talk about in our world. And it is a subject that many Christians even, and many pastors even, and many churches even, are increasingly unwilling to talk about or to deal with. Because it seems that they are more concerned with being popular than with glorifying God. And that is what we exist to do, isn't it? To glorify God. I've given you John Piper's definition of the glory of God before, which I think is excellent. And I think it very, very nicely sums up what the Bible means when it speaks of God's glory. And of glorifying God. What what does that mean? What does it mean that God is a God of glory? What does it mean that He's glorious? What does it mean to glorify God and to give Him glory? Piper says, The glory of God is the infinite beauty and greatness of all of God's manifold perfections. It's a perfect definition. Everything that God is, 
every immutable attribute of God's divine nature and character, every part is infinitely great and beautiful. And that infinite greatness and beauty is God's glory, especially when it is put on display, when it is manifested, when we can see the radiance of God's holiness and all of the beautiful attributes of His character. And to glorify God as a verb, as an activity, means to do that. It means to reveal. It means to manifest. It means to show and to speak of and to express and to exalt and to give praise unto all of the infinite beauty and greatness of all of God's manifold perfections, one of which, according to how He has revealed Himself in His Word, is His holy wrath towards sin and towards sinners. Wrath is an unchangeable attribute of God's immutable nature. And when it is revealed in His Word, like here in Acts chapter 12, we have to talk about it. We have to deal with it. We can't steer around it. We can't go, oh no, here's a passage that talks about wrath and people might leave the church or not come to the church because they don't want to hear about God's wrath. They just want to have their ears tickled. They want to hear things that are pleasing to them. No, we have to deal with it. And we have to deal with it joyfully. For this is who our God is. And the only reason not to deal with it is if it's more important to us to be comfortable or to please the appetites of people who don't want God to be who God is than to glorify God. And when we deal with the wrath of God, we have to do it carefully. And we have to be careful in this specific way, I think. We have to be careful not to think about God's wrath and view God's wrath and define God's wrath simply through the lens of our own experience. We have to be careful not to assume that what God means by by saying that He is a God who is wrathful is what our experience of anger and wrath is as finite human beings and sinful human beings can't think of God's wrath in the same sense that we are familiar with wrath in in our own finite sinful beings. There's a qualitative difference between the holy wrath of the Creator and the selfish, prideful, sinful, impulsive, fitful kind of passion that human sinful creatures exhibit. Your wrath is no measure of God's holy wrath. And then on the other side of the coin, and at the same time, sometimes people don't want to think of God being wrathful in, in, any, kind of, in any kind of emotional sense. And so, so they want to think of the wrath of God in a kind of dispassionate way, in a kind of non-emotional way, where God simply stoically purposes in His mind, in His will, to punish sin. So on the one hand, God is not just a divine hothead like we can be sometimes. 
And on the other hand, God is not just an unfeeling judge who sees sin and deals with it in a dispassionate, unfeeling kind of a way. God hates sin. It kindles His wrath. John Murray defined wrath this way, and I love this. He says, divine wrath is the holy revulsion of God's whole being against that which is the contradiction of His holiness. I love that. Sin, idolatry, unrighteousness, ungodliness, everything that is a contradiction to God's holiness is revolting to Him in His being. And that revulsion is what His wrath is. And His wrath is being expressed in the world today in limited ways, in restrained ways. And then there is coming a day when all of the limits and all of the restraints will be lifted, will be sovereignly removed. And Jesus Christ, who is the sovereign God, who is the King of all kings, who is the Anointed One, He will return to fully express all of the wrath of God against all of the sin and corruption in this world, making everything that is wrong right. Putting an end to it all, purging it all, and putting an end to this world that is groaning and that is corrupt and that is decaying because of the sin in it. And then He will create a new heavens and a new earth where only righteousness will dwell forever. And we know that that coming day of the Lord could come any day. Could come at any moment. And that the only thing that is restraining it, that is holding it back, that is keeping the second coming from happening now, is the great patience of of God, which is also an unchanging attribute of the immutable God who doesn't wish for any to perish, but that all should reach repentance. But one day, God will no longer exercise patience with this world and Jesus Christ will return and He will put an end to all of the haughty pride of men and to all of the sin and all of the wickedness that they celebrate as they flaunt their debauchery and flout God's glory and refuse to honor Him as Lord. Isn't that what Paul says is the source of all of this that's going on in our world and that this world is so proud of? In Romans 1, Paul says clearly that God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress The truth, and specifically, the truth that unrighteous people suppress by their unrighteousness is the truth about God, is the truth about God's glory. They don't want Him to be who He is, and they will not honor Him for who He is. They suppress the reality of God's character and nature and holiness, even of His existence, in order that they might justify their own unrighteousness. 
And they don't suppress that truth because it's not clearly understandable to them. Paul says it is. It's been clearly perceived in everything that God has made. The creation itself bears witness to God's handiwork, to His eternal power to make this whole world, to His invisible attributes, to His divine nature. It's not that they don't get it, it's that they suppress the truth about God because even though they know He exists, they don't want Him to. They refuse to honor Him and they refuse to give thanks to Him. And in that stubborn and prideful and sinful foolishness, their hearts become darkened and they exchange the glory of the immortal God for every kind of idolatry. And when sinful and prideful and idolatrous people do that, when they refuse to honor God and, and, then, and, then, and then petulantly turn away from Him to worshiping something else, anything else, Paul says in Romans 1, God's response then is to turn from them. Give them over to the impure passions and lusts of their hearts. And the result of that is... Lives that become more and more consumed with and polluted and corrupted by those passions, which is the root cause of all of the abominable sin and wickedness that's being celebrated during Pride Month, as well as every other kind of sin and wickedness in this world. They not only do these things, Paul says in Romans 1.32, they give hearty approval to those who practice them, and that's what's happening. They celebrate the things which God hates and which causes His holy wrath to pour down from heaven. That is exactly and precisely what is going on in our world, in our country. Ungodly people are shaking their fists at God, raging against God, casting away His cords from themselves, refusing to honor Him as Lord, exchanging His glory for wickedness and idolatry, and wantonly indulging in all kinds of heinous immorality, and entertaining every kind of sin in their lives, and giving approval to those on the front page of the White House webpage, giving approval to those who practice all of that godless unrighteousness. And the sovereign God, who is the King of all, sits in heaven his anointed Christ at his right hand and scoffs at all of this arrogant pride and holds it all in derision as his wrath is kindled. And that day is coming when his anointed will return and will break with a rod of iron all who continue to refuse to honor him. And so the time draws shorter and shorter every day. The day of the Lord draws nearer and nearer every day for people to kiss the Son, for people to repent of their sin and find refuge in Christ instead of of anything in this world and in the passions of their flesh. And as we can see all throughout Scripture, in lots and lots of places, like the place we're looking at together here, In the end of Acts chapter 12, when the sovereign God determines to make an end of someone who is raging against him and refusing to give him glory, 
It does not matter how proud that person is, how strong that person is, how influential that person thinks they are in this world. God will end them in an instant when He wants to. Pride goes before destruction. And a haughty spirit goes before a fall, Proverbs 16, 18 says. And that was certainly the experience of King Herod Agrippa here in Acts chapter 12. Last week, beginning of chapter 12, we took in the awesome story of how the true king and the true God sovereignly delivered Peter from his chains and his bondage in prison in Jerusalem in spite of all of Herod's efforts to keep Peter behind bars until the morning when Herod planned to drag him out and publicly execute him. Herod put, remember, no fewer than 16 guards in charge of watching over Peter for one night. That's all you got to do, guys. Just make sure he stays in jail for one night. There's 16 of you. You got it? Yeah, we got it. Big iron gate. It's locked. He's inside. There's 16 people surrounding him. He's chained physically to at least two of them, one by each arm, and yet literally he walked right out of the prison in the middle of the night because an angel of the Lord caused the chains to fall off and the gate of the prison to fly open on its own and led Peter out of there. And did it in a way that none of those 16 guards, apparently, or anyone else, took notice of. And so verse 18 says, Luke giving us one of the greatest understatements in all of Scripture When day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. Wouldn't you love to have been a fly on the wall of that prison when the sun came up that day? (laughs) Oh, man. And watch what Luke calls no little disturbance. They're not just going, where'd he go? He was just here. What happened? They're freaking out. Because suddenly and unexplainably, their one prisoner was just gone. And see, in that time, and in that place historically, for those guards to fail at this commission to keep Peter behind bars, it didn't just mean they were going to get scolded or rebuked or their pay docked or lose their jobs. No, this was a death sentence and they knew it. If there's someone who is charged with a capital crime and scheduled to be executed and you lose him, then you get executed instead. And they knew it. They're in big trouble. Now Herod, of course, immediately finds out that Peter's missing and launches a search for him. I imagine he must have mustered every every troop he could find to search for Peter and he came up empty and, and that by itself seems to me to also involve a a pretty significant manifestation of divine providence. He's at Mary's house. They wouldn't have thought of that. I mean, you you would think that Herod could figure out a way to hunt Peter down and find him, but he, he couldn't. He came up empty. And after interrogating all of the guards, he had them all executed. 
And the next statement there at the end of verse 18 or verse 19, don't gloss over it. It's important. Luke tells us that after Herod had the guards put to death, that he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. And it's significant that he spent time in Caesarea. He basically moved his royal throne from Jerusalem to Caesarea. Now Luke says that he went down from Judea to Caesarea. And if you look at a map of Israel, if you look at a, uh, the maps at the back of your Bible, it's easy to see that Caesarea is to the north of Judea and Jerusalem. And ordinarily, we would say that somebody going from the south to the north, from Judea to Caesarea, we would say they're, they're going up, right? Why does Peter say he's going down? He's going up. North's at the top, right? See, the reason why we say up in reference to going north, is because ordinarily in the modern world, this is how we orient our maps. We orient them with north at the top of the page, right? And south at the bottom, so we tend to say that going north is going up. Well, see, in the ancient world, they didn't make maps the way we make them. They didn't orient their maps to the north. They oriented their maps to the east, because east was where the origins of civilization had come from. In fact, here's a little trivia for you. This is why still today we call the part of the world in the Far East, what do we call it? The Orient. You know why? Because that was the orientation of the maps. Those are the Oriental lands. That's why we call it the Orient. Because the east was the direction of orientation for map making in the ancient world. That's your little tidbit of historical trivia for the week. And I hope that's not the only thing you remember from this sermon. But (laughs) point being that going north wasn't spoken of as going up in the ancient world because they drew their maps differently than we do. And the reason that Luke says that Herod went down to Caesarea, which is to the north, from Judea is because... First of all, that's the way the topography of the land works in that part of the world. Judea and Jerusalem are up on a high plain in the middle of the country. And so getting there from anywhere else in the country involves going up to Jerusalem, literally. That's why you hear people all throughout the Psalms in the Old Testament talking about going up to Jerusalem from whichever direction they're coming in order to worship God. And also symbolically, Jerusalem was the capital. Jerusalem was the place of the temple of God. And so all throughout the Old Testament, people went to Jerusalem because they weren't just ascending geographically, they were ascending into the presence of God. And so it was always spoken of as going up. And and Jewish people always had this mindset that when you go somewhere else from Jerusalem, you're going down. So Luke says that after Peter's great escape and after Herod put the guards to death the next day, he left Jerusalem and Herod went down to the north to the coastal seaside city of Caesarea in order to spend time there. And the significance of that is much more than Herod just taking a vacation on the coast after a hard, frustrating, disappointing situation in Jerusalem. Now, what Herod's doing is giving up all of his pretense of Jewishness in order to fully embrace his Romanness now. 
Caesarea, named after Julius Caesar, was a city that epitomized everything that the Roman Empire was all about. Everything that it stood for. And it was also the least Jewish city in that region. If you wanted to find a more Roman and less Jewish city, you'd have to go all the way up to Antioch in Syria. But in the region of Judea, Caesarea was the most Roman city and the least Jewish city. And that's exactly why Herod Agrippa went there and moved his royal operations there. It meant that he was abandoning this whole ruse, remember from last week, of being a good Jewish king. Remember, he has a a Jewish grandmother, which technically qualified him to claim Jewish heritage, which he only did for a short time for political reasons. He didn't have any respect for the Jewish people or their culture, or their religion, or their scriptures. But there were lots of them in the region of Judea where he had been given kingship over by Rome. And so he thought that the way that he could succeed as a Roman official was to curry the favor of the Jews, but only in order to advance his own political ambitions. That was why he was trying to put the apostles of Jesus to death, right? Well, God sovereignly thwarted his plan to put Peter to death. And so Herod gave up on trying to play the Jewish card to his advantage. And he packed up, moved to Caesarea, because as Josephus the historian says, at this point in time... Herod changed his entire persona in order to become utterly and transparently Roman in all of his pursuits and all of his ambitions. And that is why what happens in the end of chapter 12 happens. In verse 20, Luke paints a little bit of background for us here because Luke is a very diligent historian. He says that Herod Agrippa was very angry with the cities of Tyre and Sidon. And we don't know why. Luke doesn't give us the reason. But somehow, these two cities of Tyre and Sidon got on Herod's bad side. Both of those cities are located up on the, the, the Phoenician coastline. You can find them on the maps in your Bible, on the west coast there, up above Israel in the region of Phoenicia. And both Tyre and Sidon were fairly big cities, and they were port cities, right on the coast. And so because they were port cities, they had lots of trade, lots of commerce, there was big fishing industry. But what they didn't have was any agriculture. They didn't have any way to grow food for themselves. And so they depended on the land of Judea to the south, with all of its natural irrigation and abundant farmland and agriculture, they depended on Judea to to import food from. And Herod Agrippa is the king of Judea. And for whatever reason, he wasn't happy with the cities of Tyre and Sidon, so they were literally at his mercy for food, for, for, for basic staples and provisions. And it was bad for them to not be in his good graces because they were having trouble getting food. So what do you do? 
How do they they get back on Herod's good side? Well, they decided, Tyre and Sidon, they decided to join forces in order to try to help each other out. If they wanted to eat, they were going to have to find a way to get someone close to Herod to have sympathy on them and to help them. And so they cozied up to this guy named Blastus, who, verse 20 says, was Herod's chamberlain. Now, a chamberlain was the equivalent of the modern-day secretary of state or prime minister. And Tyre and Sidon managed to get on that guy, Blastus' good side, and through him, they asked Herod to be at peace with them for the sake of their survival, so that they would be able to buy food and and import food from Judea. And they needed whatever mess they were in with Herod to get resolved, and they needed it to get resolved quickly. So they work out this arrangement with Blastus, and they make their appeal and their plea through him to Herod, and they're waiting for Herod's answer. And verse 21 tells us that Herod planned to give them the answer on a particular day in Caesarea. And Luke says he put on his royal robes and sat on his throne and delivered an oration to them. And of course, they lavished him with all of these accolades and praises and pandered to his pride so that he would be merciful and favorable to them. Now, the historian Josephus gives us some extra detail about this particular day when Herod made this particular oration. Josephus tells us that what Herod did was to host a series of games in Caesarea, like the Olympics, a big competition that would go on for multiple days in the city, and so crowds would come from all around, and he was doing this in honor of Caesar. So he takes the opportunity here, see, to gather everybody around and to make himself look good and to, and to put himself in a favorable light to Caesar. And what Herod wanted to do was to get everybody to recognize how awesome he was, to grovel before him, to flatter him. And the point is that what happened on this day was actually this big public event where it wasn't just the people of Tyre and Sidon or or a few representatives, a few emissaries, a few ambassadors who came and, and stood before King Herod in order to try to plead mercy with him and receive his answer. No, he, he turned it into a, a huge affair where people would come from all around to watch the games and hear him speak. And this is the context. This is the venue where Herod is responding to the petition for, for peace with Tyre and Sidon. He wants everyone to hear him. He wants everyone to see him. He wants everyone to see how awesome and great and probably magnanimous and merciful he is. Luke says that he wore his royal robes. Now Josephus also describes those robes for us. Listen, Josephus says... On the second day of the games, Herod put on a garment made wholly of silver and of a truly wonderful contexture. That means weave. So, 
Apparently, this royal robe that he wore was, was, was woven literally out of strands of pure silver. And Josephus says that Herod came into the theater, big amphitheater, where everyone would be seated. And way up at the top is the box where he would be. And they were all looking up to him. And he walks out in the morning, perfectly timed, in this gaudy, ostentatious robe woven out of pure silver. He came into the theater early in the morning, at which time the silver of his garment was illuminated by the fresh reflection of the rays of the sun upon it. He timed it so that this would happen. See? He's he's standing in an antechamber and he's waiting and waiting for the sun to come up and strike the box that he was going to come out to at just the right angle so that when he comes out, it hits that silver robe and makes it just radiate with the rays of the sun. And you can picture it, right? Big Roman city, big Roman festival of games going on for multiple days. Tons of people crammed in the city. Here comes King Herod wearing this ridiculous robe and making his appearance just in time for the sun to just radiate off of it. And Josephus says the robe shone out after a surprising manner. It was brighter than anybody expected. And it was so resplendent as to spread terror over those that looked intently upon it. It was blinding them and they were terrified. It had had the intended effect, in other words. It struck fear and awe into the hearts of everyone who gazed upon it. And then Herod made his speech. Josephus doesn't record it for us. Luke doesn't record it for us in terms of what specifically he said. But with the sun reflecting off his robe and all of the people in awe of him down below, both Josephus and Luke record the people's reaction, the people's response as they literally started to worship Herod as a god. Verse 22, the voice of a god and not a man. Literally, the people with all that radiant light glowing off of him and and whatever rhetoric he used and oration he gave said, oh, he's not a mere human. He's a God. Here's what Josephus says about it. At this moment, his flatterers cried out that he was a God. And they added, be thou merciful to us. For although we have only revered you as a man, yet shall we now praise you as superior to mortal nature. Utter, absolute blasphemy. And Herod loved every second of it. Soaked it up. Josephus says that when the crowd did this and revered him as a god, the king did neither rebuke them nor reject their impious flattery. Well, of course he didn't. Right? This is what he wanted. This is what he was was going for. 
Not just to stand before them as their king. Not just to make a public oration and proclamation of his authority over them and probably some, some pandering proclamation of mercy on Tyre. Behold how great I am, but I will be merciful to you peons. No. He wanted more than that. He wanted them all to honor him as a god and that's what they did. Listen. God doesn't put up with this. In Isaiah 48, the only one true God talking to Israel about His purposes to bring judgment on them for their sin against Him, for their failure to ascribe glory to Him, for their idolatry. He says this to them. He boils His sovereign purposes all down to this. He says, here's why I'm going to judge you. For my own sake, for my own sake I do it, for how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. God's glory is the infinite beauty and greatness of all of God's manifold perfections. And when human beings who are finite, who are imperfect creatures, when they try in their sinful, prideful hearts to consign the glory that only truly and actually belongs to God to themselves, the wrath of God is kindled because the idolatrous sin contradicts God's eternal Holiness, and that is fundamentally revolting to the very being of the Holy God. He will not share the glory that belongs to Him alone with another, with anyone. Herod Agrippa, Luke says in verse 23, did not give God the glory. He didn't. He wouldn't honor the true God for who God truly is. Herod tried his best back in Jerusalem to snuff out the church of God. To thwart the gospel of God. To put an end to the word of God. By murdering the apostles of Jesus Christ who is God. And then when that didn't work when the living God thwarted His plans, wouldn't, wouldn't you think that would have been a good time for Herod to go, maybe I better bow before this God who miraculously sprung Peter from prison. But instead of humbling himself before God in fear and in reverence, instead Herod went to Caesarea and made himself out to be God. And literally tried to consign the glory of God to himself. And God will not give his glory to another. And so, verse 23, immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down. Right there, while he's standing there, glowing in his stupid robe, orating, having people worship him, boom, it's over. The one that they said, we will worship you as being beyond mortal, became mortal before their very eyes. 
Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. That's right. That's right. Normally, here's how it works. People die and we bury them in the ground and then the worms eat them. The worms preceded and precipitated Herod's death in this case. Behold the seriousness of God's commitment to His own glory. Isaiah 43 and verse 7 says that God's purpose in making us in the first place was for His own glory. In Ephesians chapter 1, Paul says that God predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. Why? For what purpose ultimately? To the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us. This is the highest priority and the greatest good in all of creation, in all of existence. See, it's not that God's greatest goal is your comfort, is your good, is your blessing. It's that He blesses you in order to glorify Himself, in order to put all of His manifold perfections on display. God creates for the sake of His own glory, God redeems for the sake of His own glory, and God destroys for the sake of His own glory. Because in all of those things, we see the attributes of the holy God, all of His manifold perfections put on display. In actual reality, there is nothing in the entire universe that is more important, that is more significant, that matters more, that is worth more than the glory of God. And if we think that there is, we are idolaters, just like Herod. Of course, a lot of people don't like this, right? Including a lot of people who call themselves Christians. They take offense, pretty serious offense often, to the fact that the primary concern of God in all things is His own glory. Because what they do is they, they, in the same way that we can sometimes try to understand what it means that God is wrathful by assuming the same must be true of God that is true of us, by imputing our wrathfulness to Him. In the same way, they impute what it would mean for us to seek our own glory, the narcissism, the temerity, the pride, they impute all of that to God. They feel like for God to be consumed with a passion for His own glory would mean that He must have some major character defect. I mean, doesn't the Bible condemn people from seeking their own glory? Of course it does. You know why? Because we're not God. That's the reason why. The Bible condemns human beings, creatures, seeking our own glory in place of God's glory because we're not God. We're creatures. We're not the sovereign, almighty, eternal creator. God is who He is. 
His perfections are infinitely greater than anything true about us or anything else in creation. And so if He prioritized anything in creation more than Himself, more than His greatness, more than His glory and attributes, He would cease to be God. Listen to John Piper. This is in his book, Desiring God. Because God is utterly unique as an all-glorious, totally self-sufficient being, He must be for Himself if He is to be for us. The rules of humility that belong to a creature cannot apply in the same way to the Creator. If God should turn away from Himself as the greatest being and the source of infinite blessing, He would cease to be God. He would deny the reality of the infinite worth of His own glory. He would imply that there is something more valuable outside of Himself. And to do so is to commit idolatry. Herod Agrippa was not God. So for him to refuse to honor God as God, for him to attempt to consign the glory of God to himself, for him to pretend that there was something greater in this world than the one true God, constituted high blasphemy and idolatry. And so he was struck down by the holy wrath and justice of the one true God. Luke says he was eaten by worms. It's a pretty macabre detail for Luke to record for us, but it really does highlight, doesn't it? The absolute finiteness, the absolute frailty of even the greatest, most powerful, most influential kings and rulers of the earth. In the end of the analysis, they're just creatures. They're, they're finite, they're frail, they're weak, they're made of dust, they will return to dust. And they'll do it immediately when God decides. Because God is the one who establishes kings and takes them down. To say he was eaten by worms is, is, is an expression of his frailty in contrast to the absolute sovereignty and power and grandeur and eternal unchangeable glory of God who cannot be corrupted, who cannot decay, who cannot change. So Herod exalted himself. Herod took upon himself the praise and the glory that only God is worthy of. But in the end, Herod is just a creature whose entire existence depends on the ongoing power and mercy of the Creator who sustains all things by the word of His power. And in the end, Herod returned to the dust and was eaten by worms. In Isaiah chapter 14, God speaks words of condemnation against the king of Babylon who rebelled against God. Listen, he says to the king of Babylon, your pomp is brought down to Sheol. The sound of your harps is muted. Maggots are laid as a bed beneath you and worms are your covers. 
You think you're great. You think you're special. You think you're better than me, God says. Worms will be your blanket before you know it. How you are fallen from heaven. How you are cut down to the ground, you who have laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. You made yourself out to be a God. You said, I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. God will not share His glory with another. And those who attempt to grasp God's glory for themselves can expect in the end to meet the same end as the Old Testament king of Babylon and as Herod Agrippa here in the New Testament. It's a pretty terrible irony, isn't it? The foolish sinner pretending to be something more than they really are only to end up being just food for worms. There is a way that seems right to man, but its end is the way unto death, Proverbs says. And the end of the story is rich with glorious irony too, isn't it? I mean, here all this massive drama has played out all throughout this chapter. All these verses recording... How by the providence of God, Peter has been miraculously delivered from imprisonment and death by the hand of an angel sent by God. And how Herod, who tried to make himself out to be a god, has been struck down by the wrath of God in the most public way imaginable. And then one little verse, right there at the end, Luke simply says, the word of God increased and multiplied. Isn't that great? Despite all of Herod's power and authority as the king of Judea, in spite of all of his efforts to stop the growth of the church, to squelch the gospel and the word of God, to destroy the apostles, he was no match for the true God and the true king of this universe. No one can stay the hand of the true God and the true king of this universe. And so in spite of everything that was going on and that Herod had tried to do, the Word of God simply kept marching on. The Word of God kept increasing and multiplying in spite of all of the opposition of the Jews and the Romans together. In spite of all of the powers of all of the the world at the time being arrayed against the church and the Gospel and the Word of God, it simply just kept growing and increasing and multiplying. How encouraging is that here in California, here in Santa Cruz, where it seems sometimes like the whole world is standing against the truth of God and and against the true church of Jesus Christ. Well, you know what? So what if they are? The gates of hell will not prevail. The combined influence of every Power in this world is no match for the living, active Word of God, for the Gospel, which is the power of God unto salvation, and for the Most High God Himself, in whom we all live and breathe and have our very being. Whatever glory and power there is in this world, it's, it's fleeting 
all of the glory and the power of the greatest rulers of this earth is imminently fragile and is fleeting inevitably, but the word of the Lord endures forever. We're like the grass that withers. We're like the flower that fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. The kingdom of man is frail and weak, but the kingdom of God is eternal and unconquerable. And Jesus Christ, the only true God, is its only sovereign King. Fear Him. Don't fear these rulers of this world. Fear God. Fear Christ. John Stott wrote in his commentary on Acts, he says at the beginning of chapter 12, Herod's on the rampage, arresting and persecuting. And at the end, he himself is struck down and dead. The chapter opens with James dead and Peter in prison and Herod seemingly triumphing. It closes with Herod dead and Peter free and the word of God triumphing. Such is the power of God to overthrow hostile human plans and establish His own plans and purposes in their place. What do you hope in, Christians? What do you trust? What do you fear? Who do you serve? Listen again as we close here to the words of Daniel chapter 4, written by Nebuchadnezzar. Who once dared to shake his fist at God? Who once dared to consign the glory to himself? And God struck him down and humbled him greatly and then restored him. Miraculously, marvelously, and mercifully. And when that happened, Nebuchadnezzar said, I blessed the Most High God and praised and honored Him who lives forever. For his dominion. You see, he's, he's contrasting God with himself now. I thought I was immortal. I thought I was the most powerful. I thought my kingdom would be forever. But no, I was so wrong. God lives forever. God's dominion is everlasting. God's kingdom endures from generation to generation. All of the inhabitants of earth are accounted as nothing before Him. And He does according to His will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay His hand or say to Him, What have you done? Now look, if we're honest, we'll see and we'll admit that the idolatry and the pride and the absolute temerity of King Herod Agrippa to refuse to give glory to God and to to grasp that glory for himself, that that exists in all of us. That before God marvelously and miraculously and mercifully saved us, we suppressed the truth of his eternal power and divine nature. We refuse to honor Him as God. We refuse to give Him the glory that only He is worthy of. We all shook our fists at Him. We all rage against Him. We all tried to break the bonds of His holiness and righteousness away from ourselves. We all went, each one of us, after our own way. We all did what was right in our own eyes. We all put ourselves on the throne of our own lives and said, I am sovereign. 
we all kindled the wrath of God. And God poured it out in full measure on his only begotten son who bore it for us, all of it for us on that cross. And then glorified himself by putting his divine power, his divine sovereign authority, his holy wrath, his righteous justice, and his divine mercy, and his sovereign grace, and his sacrificial steadfast love, the beauty of all of his manifold perfections, put them all on display. when he redeemed us by the blood of his cross. There is no other God. There is no other king. Trust him. Hope in him. Serve him. Glorify him. Live your lives in a manner that is worthy of him. Amen? Father God, this morning we are humbled and filled with reverence and filled with awe at who you have revealed yourself to be in your word. Father, we repent of any inclination in ourselves to pretend that there is something more important in this universe, in us, than anything and everything that is in you. Father, we pray, glorify yourself in us. Glorify yourself in your church. Father, make all of the awesome beauty of all of your perfections to be seen in and through us, to be heard from us as we stand against all that is wicked and all that the world takes pride in and stand for your truth and stand uncompromising and unbending for the cause of your glory Father, glorify yourself by drawing many out of the darkness of this world and into the light of your glorious love. Father, fill your churches full to overflowing. May people have to stand outside in order to come and sing your praises and bow before you and render praise to the worthiness of your glory. Father, would you cause revival in Santa Cruz? Would you cause the light of your truth and your love to shine brightly in this place that is called Holy Cross? Father, would you exalt the cross? Would you exalt your son? Would you exalt yourself? Would you do it even through the humble means of of us as your servants? Father, we love you. We praise you, we crown you, and we worship you, and we glorify you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Stand with me today and find on page 7 in your program this wonderful hymn, and lift your voices up and glorify the only God and the only King as we sing, crown Him with many crowns. Let's sing together.